From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Here's a strange fact about Georgia. The state has no naturally occurring lakes. It does have a wealth of creeks, streams, and dams. Turns out that some of those dams are failing and that their failures could bring dire, even catastrophic consequences. That's according to data just released from the Associated Press. GBB's Grant Blankenship has been analyzing that information and is on the line from Macon to tell us more. Hello, Grant. Hello. So let's start with the data itself. How did the AP get its hands on it and what's in it? Yeah, so the AP spent two years investigating dam safety. They did that through open record requests to state and federal agencies across the country. And what they found were uh, 1,680 dams nationwide that are not only rated as high hazard because if they failed, people could die. But these dams are also considered to be in poor or unsatisfactory condition. All 1680 of them? Yes, that's that's the roundup number across the country. Just how many dams are we talking about in Georgia and what are they used for? Okay, so the first thing to understand is just how big these dams are. You may have heard that Georgia Power wants to decommission some old hydropower dams, like utility scale stuff. The structures that the AP were looking at, they are not those dams. Think instead of uh, like earthen structures with spillways, smaller levees, things like that. Mm-hmm. The AP found more of those dams in Georgia than in any other state. Um, They're used for everything from keeping farm ponds in check to creating recreational lakes, to roles in municipal water supply. But maybe the most important thing they're used for is flood control. Mm -hmm. And the people who are responsible for them range from like private landowners to cities and counties and even the state of Georgia in some cases. And of those 168 dams, a little less than half of those are deemed not only important to preserving human life, but are also in really bad shape. Some of these that are big and could fail are near major cities. What are some examples? So one that really sticks out on the map is the string of seven dams on the Little River watershed in what was once unincorporated Fulton County, but which is now the city of Milton. Those dams were built for flood control way back in the 1960s. And today they protect what you think of as that like typical Atlanta suburban sprawl, right? So there's country clubs and a golf course or two. Some of those dams have what are called emergency action plans on file with the state that should describe what people should do if they should fail, but not all of them. There's a pair of dams like that down in Muskogee County near Columbus that are also government-owned. There's more in Madison County north of Athens, and there's some state-owned dams like this up in Pickens County. You spoke with Herman Fritz, professor at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Georgia Tech, who said dams like those on the Little River watershed reflect a common problem in Georgia. Flood control is very critical, and particularly because we kind of have this, you know, this macro topography we want, right? We don't just have one big valley. It's a lot of smaller valleys and creeks, right? Sort of this uh, rolling hills uh, nature. Um, And uh, there's a lot of construction, you know, building out into new areas, expanding uh, new developments into areas that were never inhabited before. So that raises, uh, raises challenges for flood control, absolutely. That construction isn't just happening around cities. What's happening in North Georgia? Right. So, you know, 50 years ago, there just weren't that many people living in places like Ellijay or Helen or Blue Ridge. But today that's changing. People are retiring there. So engineers 50 years ago, they were looking at a very different challenge when it came to flood control in these places than they might be looking at if they were building these dams today. And so there's a real question about whether those old dams are up to the task of protecting the communities that surround them um, in 2019. 
Many of the dams that we are talking about, as you said, very old. How do we keep an eye on their safety until the point when they can be replaced? So the Georgia Environmental Protection Division has a staff of 11 people in what they call their Safe Dams Program. They're responsible for checking on dam safety, but they only get to about a quarter of the dams in the state every year. Tom Woosley heads the Safe Dams Program, and uh, he explains how the state picks up slack and inspection for Category 1 dams. That's their classification for these dams that could lead to a loss of life if they fail. For a Category 1 dam, the dam owner is supposed to be inspecting his dam on a quarterly basis, and then every two years retaining an engineer to do that inspection. And then our office is doing kind of a quality assurance check of some of them as depending on, you know, are we getting reports, what does the report say, that kind of thing. We're talking with Grant Blankenship from GBB in Macon, who's been analyzing new data about failing dams in Georgia. Okay, so he said that the owners are responsible for it. How about other state agencies like the EPD? Right, so that EPD staff, they're seeing a dam maybe once every four years. And in between, they're really relying on these self-inspections that they expect from dam owners. But, so, remember those dams up in Milton, in North Fulton, on Mm -hmm. the Little River watershed, by the golf courses and the country clubs? A representative from the city of Milton told me she was unaware that the city was even supposed to inspect those dams at all. She was under the impression that it was entirely the responsibility of the EPD. Herman Fritz, back at Georgia Tech, also shared with you his thoughts about inspections. Now, one of the challenges, of course, is for dam owners is that they are not necessarily dam inspectors. Quite often, you know, uh, when when they are asked, you know, what they are doing, when they are looking or inspecting the dam, so-called, that, that can just in some some cases just mean that they're walking the dam, right, looking for obvious signs. Unless the, uh, uh, the person actually inspecting the dam has some training on how to inspect the dams and, and what to look for, uh, then it can be hard to find, you know, uh, sort of uh, the non-obvious things. Did Fritz share with you any ideas for how to do inspections better or even how they can be better regulated? Well, yeah, he does have some ideas. I mean, there are machines we can deploy to, to monitor dams, right? There, there are these sensors and new technologies that we could put in these structures to gather data, even when we're not walking them or checking them every four years ago, that can tell us how well they're doing their jobs. And that's the sort of thing he'd like to see uh, out in the world. Well, Grant, I can't help but think about notable hurricanes that we've had in recent years. Irma and Michael come to mind. What does this mean for dams? Well, you know, climate change predicts that we're going to have more of these storms. And Herman Fritz uh, points to Hurricane Joaquin back in 2015. We had Hurricane Joaquin dump close to two feet of rain in a couple of days uh, uh, on the greater Columbia area, Richland and the Lexington counties in South Carolina. That's only 100 miles away from the border of, of Georgia and, uh, and South Carolina. I mean, in Columbia, we had, you know, we had dozens of dam breaches. Those dozens of dam breaches led to the death of 19 people. And that's a storm that didn't even make U.S. landfall. But what it did was bring what we called, in 2015, like once-in-a-millennium levels of rain. Herman Fritz says that events like that aren't going to remain once-in-a-millennium, and that's one reason we need to take a really hard look at the soundness of all these small dams. So looking through this report, on paper, these dams are a real problem, but have we had any cases of breach dams that cause widespread problems here? 
heretofore the only example of these dams breaking because of a big storm happened way back in 1994. That was Tropical Storm Alberto. But, you know, as I said, climate models predict that that's not going to be an outlier, that we're going to have more of these events and we probably need to prepare for them. So have you heard of any plans to increase funding for dam inspections or even to replace some of these problematic structures near big populations? Well, no. (laughs) I don't know that there is a big plan to address this in a systematic way. But since I started reporting this, the EPD has pointed out that a handful of the structures that were on that AP list were voluntarily breached by their owners in the last year or so. That restored those streams to a free-flowing state. As for the EPD Safe Dam Program, it is staffed at an all-time high right now, but their budget has been dropping in recent years. Well, Grant, thank you so much for bringing us through the data on this report. Yeah, thank you for giving me the time. I appreciate it. GPB's Grant Blankenship, based in our Macon Bureau, he's been analyzing new data about failing dams in Georgia, some which, if breached, could be catastrophic to human life. You can find a map of Georgia's dams that he put together at gpbnews.org. Potentially failing dams aren't the only thing that Grant has been tracking lately. He's also been following a decades-old cold case. More than 70 years ago, four people were lynched in the Georgia town of Monroe. It happened at a bridge over the Appalachie River. In the decades since, activists have sought to find out who did it. Now a federal appeals court is weighing in. It's considering whether or not to release a trove of evidence in the lynching at Moore's Ford Bridge. Grant filed this story for NPR. It's an afternoon in July and a crowd of people are trying to find the right spot on a two-lane road outside the town of Monroe to watch a crime. Make your way up the hill, you can see the first scene. In this reenactment, a well-dressed white man with a fuming cigarette waves down a car on the road crossing the Appalachie River. With more white men, he forces four black people, two couples, out of the car. On July 25, 1946, the mob probably wanted Roger Malcolm. He had already been in jail for stabbing a white man. But by the end of this, the 15th annual reenactment of the lynching at Morrisford Bridge, spectators will see how Malcolm's wife, Dorothy Dorsey Malcolm, her brother, George Dorsey, and his wife, Mae Murray Dorsey, were also murdered. And cut! Can everyone just go move that way? The crime made headlines all over the country. But over the course of a grand jury investigation, where the FBI interviewed over 2,000 people, almost half of Walton County 73 years ago, and where over 100 people testified before the grand jury, not a single indictment was handed down. Darius Bradshaw has played Roger Malcolm for five years. By now, there's only one thing about Morse Ford he wants to know. I want to know exactly who did it. Hold on just a little while longer. The answer might be in the Morse Ford grand jury records. Historian Anthony Pitch and his lawyer Joe Bell have been fighting the FBI and the Department of Justice to unseal those records for years. Soon they'll make their case before all 12 judges of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Atlanta. But in the morning before the reenactment, Joe Bell tells a crowd in the First African Baptist Church of Monroe that preparing for the hearing has gotten complicated. Most unfortunately, um, Anthony Pitch passed away about three weeks ago. However, and I now without his plaintiff, Bell will have to prove to the court there are enough people who still care about Morse Ford that the records should still be unsealed. And he'll have to find someone to make sense of it all. 
Bell tells the church he's got somebody. Another author, Laura Wexler, wrote a book on the Moore's Ford tragedy as well. So Laura Wexler published her book, Fire and a Cane Break, in 2003. She's spoken to Bell, and she's prepared for the grand jury records, but... Do I think there's going to be a smoking gun in this? Um, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. What she could learn is how people who knew things in 1946, but who kept quiet, helped sustain a system that tolerated murder. We would look to the entire system as both the cause for an incident like this and then the, the, the protection for those who perpetrated it. When Joe Bell argued in October before all 12 judges of the 11th Circuit, he said the time for justice was overdue. And no one, neither the U.S. attorney nor the judges, seemed to want to hold on to the grand jury records. But they aren't Bell's yet. He says something else is at work. I think that's we're, we're in a, the throes of a dilemma where you have to separate whether or not this is a cold case or whether the courts have the inherent authority to release the records of the grand jury transcript. If the court decides judges can release grand jury testimony, the effect could ripple far past this case. Still, Bell says he expects justice in the Morseford lynching someday, maybe even someday soon. For GPB News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon. Coming up, amidst the hubbub of last week's Democratic debate in Georgia, you might have missed the event that had former President Barack Obama in town on the same day. Learn about the Green Build Initiative just ahead. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. <laughs> 